0: Mercy and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ amen a cartoon shows how the chain of command works in a business organization there is a worker sitting at her desk there's the worker and standing in the cartoon behind her is the man who manages the worker And standing behind him is the man who manages the man who manages the worker. And standing behind him is the man who manages the man who manages the man who manages the the worker. And on it goes. The chain of command, or as another cartoon put it, it pictures the cover of a book entitled The Chain of Command, and then has the subtitle, and other hilarious jokes you could tell yourself. So sometimes we get confused about the chain of command. And it can get so confusing in complex organizations, who do you actually report to, and you report to one person, and then they report to the next person, and then the problem that initiated with you is taken off into some place you don't even know where, and nothing gets fixed. You know some people in fact think of God this way. They call him the man upstairs. And they think of God as this process of the chain of command where things just get lost and don't get dealt with. You take the hurricane, for instance. Some people look at the devastation of the hurricane, the death, the chaos of all of that. And they conclude, well, if God is in control, then he must be cruel because he knows all these things are going to happen and he lets them happen anyway. Or others would say, well, I would say God's not in control, really. He created the world, but he just set it off like a watch to tick and tick as time rolls on, because if he was, he wouldn't let these things happen. And then a third group of people might say God is just partially in charge, and he's doing battle against other forces that are in charge, and basically Satan and him are doing battle every day, and it's a 50-50 chance. Who's going to come out on top? None of these pictures, however, represent what the early church and the apostles thought about God. None of these pictures represent what the Bible is actually saying when it comes to prayer. What demonstrates this most clearly is that after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles, the first thing and the disciples were doing was praying. And they weren't praying to some vague person off in the heavens and the sky, a cosmic therapist or the CEO of all the universe that they didn't really have access to. They saw themselves as praying to the one who they knew in the flesh, the one who lived with them, the one who died with them, the one who rose and showed himself to them, the one who said, I'm going to my Father, and I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, so that you can be with me, and I can be with you, all of us. There was a change that happened in the minds of the disciples after the resurrection. You take Peter for example. Before Jesus' death, Peter was convinced that he knew the answers and he knew how to deal with God and he knew how to get things done but one thing that he wasn't doing was praying you rarely hear anything about the apostles praying before the book of Acts and the very few references have to do with Jesus praying and them being along for the ride and maybe Jesus teaching them a few things like the Lord's Prayer But in the Gospels, Jesus is the one praying, not the disciples. In fact, when Peter faces his greatest test, and Jesus says, you're all going to deny me this night, do any of them pray? No, instead, Peter has a different response. His, His immediate response, he's ready. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Peter was sure he knew what Jesus was up to and what God was up to, and he was ready to go all the way. But he spoke before he prayed. And when he said, I'm ready to go with you to prison and in death, maybe that will come his way, but not yet. Not before Peter denied Jesus three times. It's kind of like I heard someone say to me recently, if I was your spiritual doctor... And I asked you this question. You and I are meeting in my office. You've come to me for a checkup, and I say, How's your heart? What would you say? Would you immediately respond, like, Peter, my heart's fine. I'm good. Everything's taken care of. I'm ready to do whatever needs to be done that God asked me? Or would you pause? Would you think? Would you pray? As Peter says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and in death. It's not long after that that he's actually falling asleep as Jesus is being arrested and taken off prisoner. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane where all the disciples are falling asleep. And Jesus keeps on praying. It says he's praying fervently so that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood And he's praying for Peter. He says, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows not only what's coming for Peter and denying him, but he also knows what's coming afterwards, that Peter's faith is going to be restored. And just like every one of us who searches our heart and sees, you know what, I've been where Peter's at, I've made the same failures, I've let the Lord down, I've sinned, Jesus knows. And he prays for you. He's still praying for you so that your faith would be restored, You'd be strengthened, and then he's got things in mind for you. He's got things in mind for Peter in particular. Here's Peter, who said, I will go with you to prison and to death, who is actually now in prison and facing death. In Acts chapter 12 is where we're picking up. We see how Herod, who is a relative of the great Herod, Herod the Great, a ruler of much of that area, all the way up to Syria, the king lays violent hands on the apostles and the disciples, and he kills James, the brother of John. He has him beheaded. That's all we learn about James at that point. James is gone. And the disciples are dealing with this. God didn't save James. What's he going to do with Peter? Peter. So when Herod sees that this, this pleases the Jews who wanted James dead, now he does the same to Peter and he has him locked up. The time period is the Days of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover festival. And they're remembering all the stuff God did when he brought him out of Egypt, how he rescued them from bondage, how they were slaves, and God rescued them through the Passover. And it's at this particular timing that Peter is in prison, just like a slave. He's bound and he's awaiting Herod's decision. And it says in verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains with guards at the door. There's no getting out of this one. So who's in charge? James is dead, Peter's almost dead. The Jesus movement and its leaders seem to be being squashed and Herod's in control. He's got all the soldiers, he's got all the weapons, he's got the prison. You look at it and you might say Herod's in control. A lot like the Egyptians and Pharaoh as the the greatest world power at the time the time of the Passover was Pharaoh, he seemed to be in control of everything, until God came along. The battles that we fight are much more than what you see with your eyes. It's a battle for who's in charge. Not just knowing who's really in charge, but engaging with the one who is truly in charge. The fact that the apostles and disciples are praying shows you that they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. If they asked, someone asked them on the street, Well, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? How do you know that's true? They'd say, Well, of course it's true. I just talked to him this morning. They're engaging with the Lord of all and calling upon him. It says, They were kept in fervent prayer, the same phrase that's used to speak of Jesus praying in the garden. How many parallels are there between Jesus' prayer life and the prayer life of the church in the book of Acts? Just as Jesus was fervently praying, facing his sentence, facing his chains, and facing death, now the church has picked up with the prayers of Jesus and is continuing to pray with him. On that very night, as Peter was all locked up between chains and soldiers and guards, a messenger of the Lord appeared, and a light shone around him. Just like the angel that appeared to the shepherds on the hill, and a light shone around them. And he's got three things to say. Wake up, get up, and follow me. He tells them to wake up. In fact, it describes him as having to poke Peter. Peter was maybe very soundly asleep and he's got to give him a little nudge to get him to wake up. And then he says to get dressed. And then he says to follow me. I think we all could use a little nudge. I think there are times when all of us in our prayer life need a little kick, need a little wake up call. We need this sort of an experience where there's no way out. We're trapped in order for us to realize how important God is and how powerful prayer is. So this messenger leads him out of the prison into the city and all the way uh, down the street until Peter finally comes to the door of the house. And when he finally is set free and he's in the city, he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So who is in charge? He comes to the house of Mary. The disciples and friends are gathered there. What are they doing? It's the middle of the night. Peter himself was sleeping. But they're not sleeping. It says they're gathered together and they're praying. They're praying all night long. It's just like the night vigil watch when the children of Israel were told to stay in their houses at the time of the Passover. Sacrifice a lamb, put it on their doorposts, and the angel of death was going to pass over. They were to have a night vigil watch, stay awake, watch for the Lord, and wait. And it's at times where great trials come on us that we need to keep that vigil and realize There is light, even in the darkest of places. The Lord is shining lights into the corners of places where we thought no one would ever want to go in our lives or in our hearts. They're praying. They're praying for Peter. They're praying for God. We don't know what they're saying exactly. In fact, we might surmise they're praying for boldness. When Peter finally comes to the door, they hardly even believe it. It's just like when Jesus rose from the dead and he appears to his uh, to the women, and the women come back to the men and they say, "We've seen the risen Lord." And they say, "You're full of it. It's a bunch of idle tales." So now the servant girl Rhoda comes to the door. She hears Peter knocking. She gets so excited. Peter's at the door, and she runs back in to find the people. She says, Peter's at the door. And meanwhile, Peter's still standing out there. Knocking, knocking, knocking. And they they don't believe her. They say, You're crazy. I mean, are we any different, really, when it comes to our prayers? We pray fervently. But it's almost surprising when God actually answers those prayers. They're so surprised, they come to the door. And they're overwhelmed with excitement that Peter can't even get a word in. He has to silence them finally, and he retells the story of what happened. Who's in charge? Since God has raised Jesus from the dead, you see how it changes the people that follow him. They're no longer hiding. They're no longer sleeping. They're no longer carelessly making decisions. They're acknowledging that there's someone there. They have access to the throne room, better yet, the living room, the place where their father sits in his recliner. And you come along and sit on your couch, and there you are engaged with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting to your left in conversation. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. And it's at that moment where you're on the couch with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that you finally realize I know who's in charge. It's not me. It's finally in prayer when we stop being in charge. Prayer forces us to this place of humility where we just can't decide for God what should or should not happen. All we can do is ask. Our willpower is no longer the final power. There's another will, a will that comes from God, and a will that's always good. And prayer doesn't just throw us aside as if we have no part to play, but it joins us to his will, So we become co-rulers, joining together with Jesus in his kingdom for his plans for the world in the future. There's no greater privilege we could imagine than to be joining with Jesus in his plans for the world. When we ask this question, who's in charge, When we pray, we should realize it doesn't always work out the way it did for Peter. In fact, we've already seen that James, the brother of John, didn't get rescued, not physically. He got beheaded. And many Christians have been persecuted, have suffered, and have died, not being miraculously delivered like Peter. Jesus prayed. In the garden. Father, if there's any other way, deliver me from this suffering. Jesus prayed. If Jesus can pray and God can say, Nope, I need you to go forward with this. I need you to suffer. I need you to die, then we will be no different. Hurricanes will still come. People will still suffer. Cancer will still get us. And our loved ones will die. But the true prayer, the true rescue, the true freedom that we're really looking for is not from that physical prison, it's not from the hurricane, it's not from a sickness. The true freedom is in our hearts, no matter what the circumstances, that we can still have peace, that we can still know God is in charge, even when we can't see it. Faith brings us into that reality that's bigger than the things we see and experience outwardly. Sometimes Herod will seem to get the best, chain up our people, wall them in, set guards around them. Sometimes we will be trapped. It can come in the form of addiction, It can come in the form of anger. It can come in the form of worry about uncertainty, financial circumstances, job, marriage, future. All these things can shackle us. And Herod really wants to keep you in that prison, that place where you say, there's no use, there's no way out, I'll never be better than this, I'll never get out of this. But there are people praying for you. At that time when you're sleeping and you have no idea, you're just stuck, there are other Christians who are praying. And we should all be engaged in that fervent prayer when we know somebody's trapped, when somebody's imprisoned, when the devil has them walled in, and they don't seem to have any way out. Or when it's you, ask for prayers. And God will send a message something like this. Wake up. Get yourself dressed. And let's go. A little kick. Wake up. Get out of the slumber of self-pity. Or the burden of guilt and shame that has overwhelmed you. Your sins are forgiven. I have carried them for you. I've taken them. I've suffered them. There's no need for you to continue to be bound by this sorrow and depression and self loathing. Get up and get dressed. Put on my righteousness, put on the cloak of white that I've washed in my own blood for you. Wear it proudly and remember that you belong to me. You're my child. You are righteous in my sight. So now that you're up, now that you're dressed, let's go. And he leads you. And there might be times when you look back and say, oh, how could I ever have done that? There might be times when you stumble. There might be times when Peter still messes up. But the direction remains the same. Following the voice, following the messenger, following the word, praying. Realize there are people praying for you. There are people praying, and Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. There is someone knocking at the door. As it says in the book of Revelation, Behold, I knock, and anyone who opens that door, I will enter, I will eat with you, I will make my home with you. In the end, Herod has no power. In the end, what Herod is seeking after, that control, that fear, that abuse, all of that comes to nothing because god strikes him down for his pride for seeking the glory for himself and he dies and he's eaten by worms we don't need the voice of a god we need the voice of our god when we are struggling we're scared or imprisoned we can't go to herod for answers we can't barter with him or beg him We can't be fooled by the smooth words or the popular rhetoric of politicians and celebrities and pastors. We can only go to Jesus and give God all the glory and pray and praise and give thanks. Amen.